Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special PR Week podcast. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. We've got a brilliant guest here, Andrew Bleeker, who's president of Bully Corporate Interactive. And we're going to talk about purpose. One of the questions I think all CCOs have to really ask themselves is, why did we start doing purpose in the first place? And more specifically, the changing nature of the economy and maybe some more pressures on the purpose agenda than we've seen the past two or three years. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Going to be a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So set this up for us. We've been talking about purpose at PR Week, and it's been part of the business agenda. We saw the business roundtable statement of purpose, supposedly putting it on as uh, same par as shareholder value. And, you know, we can discuss whether it actually is or was, but uh, it was a significant statement at least. How have you been seeing that from your point of view in, in the work you do at Bully Pulpit? And how, how do you see where we are, what we've seen over the last couple of years, and how, maybe how it's changed in 2022? Well, let's just start with that. I mean, so I come out of the world of politics originally, and we sort of sit between policy and business and have that lens. Uh, and, you know, the world has changed pretty dramatically, right? So when purpose really had its heyday for over the last three years, it was frankly in good times, right? The stock market doubles basically from the start of the pandemic until January of this year. Uh, and these were all existential problems, right? After 10 years of economic growth, today that's not the case, right? Economically, we have inflation, we can debate recession, but the stock market's down 20%. A lot of industries, particularly some of the biggest spenders, are down a lot more, <laughs> you know, tech in particular. Especially uh, tech, yeah. Especially tech. I mean, we're in layoff season right now. And so I think the biggest challenge that all of our clients are going through right now is what does next year look like, right? When economically we have pain, politically, we can talk more about politics, but politically we're certainly in a more divisive era. The, a lot of these things that seem like very safe harbor, like an ESG or DNI, are no longer so safe and obvious. And frankly, geopolitically, these aren't just U.S. companies and U.S. issues, but we're in a very different polarized, you know, sort of two-world situation with, with bigger problems. Uh, so all these things that seem like no-brainers, that seem really good initiatives, uh, in a time of layoffs are not, are not easy questions. Yeah, it's a good point about the global situation. Obviously, lots of brands are operating globally, especially U.S. brands. And we've seen... A number of things. We've seen even companies like Procter & Gamble, which has really doubled down on purpose. And, and and there's this whole concept of purpose being good business, being profitable business as well, right? So the, the two are not mutually exclusive. And then we're, so you're talking about politics. We've seen some states saying, well, we're not going to invest our pension monies in funds that are d doubling down on purpose. And I'm thinking of Florida and BlackRock, for example. So these sort of discussions, you're right, are very different. So what? It, how are your, it's such a difficult one for your clients to navigate. How are you seeing them navigate and how are you advising them to navigate these difficult situations? Yeah. Well, one of the questions I think all CCOs have to really ask themselves is, why did we start doing purpose in the first place? Right. And there are going to be some where the answer to that is we really feel passionately about solving these problems. Like maybe that's something, you know, a food company like PepsiCo is trying to solve hunger, right? Or, or nutrition or, or, you know, you know, Goldman Sachs and our 1 million black women program is, is really genuinely committed, you know, as they have been on, uh, you know, that's a huge initiative as they have been on like small businesses or, or 10,000 women. But in a lot of cases, I think these programs stemmed in response to threats, truthfully. If you were to really push them, um, it wasn't a bold. It may, maybe there was the occasional bold CEO, but a lot of these responded to threats, and particularly the 2020 election, 
right? Uh, here in the States or, or, or elsewhere. Uh, and so th- those programs, maybe they started because there was real legislative threat. There was real regulatory threat. I think the other thing that's changed is, you know, obviously the, as we fill, as we record this, there's still a little bit of open question, but not much about where, you know, where the U.S. politics are going to land. But the reality is there's not going to be a lot of legislation here domestically, federally, the next couple of years. You know, at best, we're, we're, you know, we're in a very split uh, Congress, right? Likely divided government. Right? So there's not going to be a lot of legislation. There is still going to be a couple real threats, though, that are going to drive business. And I think as brands and CCOs in particular, or chief purpose officers, chief impact officers, whatever the term is we're using in each individual brand, as we try to think about how do we defend these programs for next year, how do we double down, how do we keep growing, the real question is how do we tie these things to business goals? Right, because ultimately boards are putting more pressure on them than we've ever seen before. Uh, so you mentioned states. I think states are one of the most interesting things. Is is st- unlike the unlike the federal government, which is quite divided. States are increasingly one party rule, right? Which means they can move really, really fast, uh, and they're moving fast in two radically two diametrically opposed uh, mm-hmm. directions. Uh, we just had an event with state legislators from different from from both parties, uh, and it, it barely looks like we're in the same country in terms of the kind of things they're going to be focused on. Almost all state legislators, more than 45, meet in January, right? So again, not all these meet. So we're going to see, you know, every year, we're going to see huge, huge progress from states the next couple of years. And frankly, they're going to take up the baton on a lot of these issues where the federal government has not. So the, the dealing with states is one, is one issue. Um, on the, in the federal level, we don't expect a lot of threat from legislation. We see an incredibly high regulatory environment over the next couple of years. So in a world where the Biden administration is feeling pretty darn good coming out of the election, but they might not be able to legislate, uh, you're going to see a very aggressive regulatory regime, right? SEC, EPA, whatever it might be, right? Which could have huge implications, right? And so how does how do these things tie into your public affairs, your, your regulatory risk? Uh, it's going to be a big opportunity. Uh, and then clearly oversee, you know, and the other one, the other really big one for us um, you know, and I think why did people start these initiatives in the first place has been the war for talent, right? Uh, and we know, right? We all have seen the research on how important purpose is for why someone chooses to stay or chooses to accept an offer. Uh, what we haven't seen enough research on is the cost, right? But what we all know, and we're starting to really see, and we're starting to see from our clients, is that there is a tangible tax that companies pay when they have to recruit people to a company that has a tarnished reputation, and there is a tangible discount uh, that a company take like a Patagonia in our world or something can pay for that people absolutely are dying to go work for, right? And those, what's interesting is those taxes and discounts uh, and ultimately the impact on attrition, uh, you know, and and the savings from training and everything else uh, add up to, in most cases that we've seen, an order of magnitude more than the investment in the purpose initiatives. Uh, but yet, most companies still see these things as expenses rather than investments. Yeah, it's a good point on talent, isn't it? Because you um, people want to work for purposeful companies and some of the best talent and most diverse talent as well wants to work in that environment. But how do we change that narrative then to make, make it seem as good business is also profitable business? Because it seems to me that's a fundamental point that isn't getting through. I mean, Unilever has often said that some of their most profitable brands are their most purposeful brands. And in fact, they're going to drop some of the less purposeful brands because they're not as profitable. But that message doesn't seem to be coming through. How do we change that? 
I think the whole question here is how do we in the communications industry put better ROI on purpose, right? My view is that it's going to be much more difficult to do on the consumer marketing side of the house, right? So I, I think when you when you pull and you research consumers around, okay, why do you buy one brand over another? Very quickly, you get to price, right? And purpose tends to, particularly in this economy, is going to drop off real fast uh, from that list, right? I think these other issues, the regulatory risk, the local regulatory, the local legislative environment, and particularly the war for talent, are places we can put. We can totally rethink the metrics uh, for the purpose industry, and, and we're seeing smart companies do that today, right? So, for instance, companies do know, and this is where the partnership between other the CCO and other divisions becomes so critical. People, you know, HR does know the cost of attrition, right? If attrition drops by you know twenty percent to ten percent, people do know what that savings can be, but we we rarely understand the impact of communications efforts in those things, and we have to calculate it pretty clearly. And it's quite doable. Yeah, for sure. So we've seen the purpose thrive, if you like, even during COVID. But we've also seen the role of the CCO and communications rise in terms of importance in the C-suite. So given that it is in, increasing, increasingly important, CEOs, C-suites understand what it can bring. Can we not get uh, more alignment with marketing and HR and other departments to actually bring these metrics, these measurement techniques into place so that we can demonstrate the value of what not just comms is doing, but purpose, purposeful business across the board? No question. All these challenges we're talking about, none of these are single audience challenges. That's what's so interesting about the situation today is that, you know, historically, all these divisions were based on audience. So comms dealt with the press and marketing dealt with customers, IR dealt with investors, you know, GA or someone else dealt with, dealt with regulators. And almost all these issues we're talking about um, are, are multi-stakeholder issues. They impact everyone. They impact, you know, talent and HR. Uh, and one of the things that we're seeing across our clients, and there have been some great examples in, in this space recently, if you look at, you know, John Banner going to McDonald's in, in, in his new role, right, of chief impact officer. Uh, you look at others like, a, you know, Adina Powell at Goldman, right? Uh, there's so many of these, you know, obviously Dan Bartlett at Walmart. There's so many of these folks that have really taken on roles that are really almost consigliere kind of roles that really do have this broader remit across stakeholders on these sets of topics. And that's really exciting. That's what it's going to take. Uh, and it makes sense, right? When these were black swan issues, when they were occasional, the multi-stakeholder issues were CEO issues. Uh, and I think we all realize that today, and certainly what we're seeing from our clients today is that these are no longer black swans. These are constant topics. And unless the CEO is going to be a full-time communicator, uh, which they can't mostly can't afford to be. They're going to have to designate somebody, and usually the best people equipped to do that come from our field. They come from communications. Or they come from policy, uh, and that's the opportunity for our space. And that's really exciting. And when we do that, we can build great partnerships with HR. Because by the way, the war for the best talent is never going to end in today's economy. There may be fewer total jobs, but the war for the the best talent is as hot as ever. So yes, we can we can build this stuff, and that's how we build. That's how we get CFOs on board, and that's how we get boards on board. One of the problems I think these days is that you get these buzzwords or these phrases like woke capitalism that just sort of take off, don't they? And really, it can be a relatively small number of voices shouting like that, but it just catches on. Whereas maybe within boardrooms, people are saying, well, actually, we're doing pretty well with this, and it's going very well. It's not woke capitalism. It's actually capitalism because we're making money and we're also doing the right thing, you know? So it just, it does seem that we've got fundamentally just shift that and that, that, that narrative in some way. How do we do that? How do you, how do you 
play in that space? And how can the CCO and, and agencies like yourselves help help in that uh, respect? Sure. Well, the, the first first off, to your point, the boards and CEOs, certainly the ones we work with, are so proud of these efforts, right? No, nobody they they really feel like they're doing the right thing. They feel like they're having an impact. They see it, uh, and no one's eager to pull back. The question is, how do we help them justify it? Right at a time when, frankly, people are doing layoffs right now, whether they need to or not, because just of fear and because the market's giving them the space to do it, where they're not going to be criticized for it right now, uh, since everyone everyone else is doing it too. Uh, I, I think that, I think there are a couple ways we do that. Obviously, there's a I think purpose and social issues can get conflated. I don't think they have to be. Right? Let's just talk purpose for a second, and then we can talk broader politics. But when, when most people talk about this stuff, I think people get people go where you're going right away, right? In in companies, which is, oh, we don't want to be political or you know, nobody really wants to be partisan. Uh, but we don't have to be. So take take states, right? Yes, you know, what you hear about from states going in different directions is is some of the national topics, right? You know, and so what's going on with abortion rights and, and health and women's health care. But what do most state legislators care about? It's not that really in practice it's are you helping their their district <laughs> are you helping their state right and if you as an enterprise are able to make a real contribution in those communities you can be a rock star right they just they, they're not they don't need everything to be nationalized if you have employees on the ground and you're able to help in those communities and build relationships with local legislators uh, they're not eager to throw that away uh, just because you might be headquartered in New York or you might have an ESG fund or might even be a renewable energy company. Um, both parties are really eager to deal with you if you can help in their communities. So there are tons of ways to get just in, into impact, uh, particularly if you stay focused and you stay focused on really tangible programs that are core to your business and core to your sector, right? And and you can show real results. And that's that's what CEOs like. They want to be able to go to those events and meet with people. That's, you know, boards understand the... Uh, the, the reduction in risk when we can build those relationships. Uh, and ultimately, we got to quantify these things. I mean, we can't quantify purpose from a, a how much press is it getting you perspective, right? That's, that's a, that is not going to help us get where we need to go. We do have to quantify purpose in terms of, uh, and again, it's not the only reason you do these things, but in terms of how do you justify continuing it when times are tough, it's how are we reducing regulatory risk? How are we building, you know, what are we doing to our reputation? Because we know that whether it's a state or it's a regulator, they're, they're really only going to have time for a couple issues and if you are in a, in a couple targets. And if you can take yourself off the very top of that list, uh, usually that's enough right on the, that side. Uh, as we talked about, you can calculate it to the dollar uh, on the war for talent side. And that, that is when, when we've seen boards uh, see those numbers, these, these become no-brainer conversations, right? Because they're committed to the concept of employee brand they just all haven't figured out exactly how purpose is connected to it, right? And so that's where those relationships with HR and, and others become invaluable. Yeah, you made an interesting point about the difference between purpose and making statements on social issues. A lot of companies are dealing with employees saying, we want you to get out there and make statements and and get involved. And, and it's almost like, yeah, well, we, we can't make a statement on everything. And actually, it's not our job to change the world. How do you reflect on that and almost the role of comms within that? And especially as, you know, a big company is going to have people on different sides of any issue or environment. So it's it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, though I think CCOs have done phenomenally the last year or two on that topic. I think almost everyone now has an answer to that. 
uh, or has some some rubric has been through some version of that conversation. You know, you couldn't have escaped some of these moments, whether that was on race and and you know and, and some of the trials or on the Dobbs decision or on the election itself, and whether everyone's had to go through this. So I think most CCOs have a really clear answer of where they're at this point of where they are not going to engage. It's not going to make everyone happy, but really, I I think. I, I don't actually think that's the challenge that, that CCOs are facing today. I think they're most of them have have some rubric on that and feel reasonably aligned with their CEOs and their boards because uh, that's not like boards are eager to take every topic and they can handle. You know, they've had those conversations with their teams. The question I think is at a time when everything's being cut and everything is scary. You know, not do you have to weigh in on everything, but can you even do the basics? <laughs> and should we just you know batten down the hatches right now? That that's kind of where I see the world as we go into twenty twenty three. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you, you're obviously from a political background, and we've had uh, slightly interesting midterm elections this week as we record this. What do you, and a lot of these issues kind of played out in how some of the votes went and how people, what influenced people, people's votes. There was a lot of chat about a red wave, which never really materialized. What were the, uh, issues you saw that were affecting, and obviously it's state by state, but what were the big issues you, you saw affecting both, both parties' votes that, uh, that we've been, that play into this wider purpose agenda? As you know, and I'm sure everyone knows that the, you know, the historical precedent on this, if we still think there's, you know, his, if we still think we're a normal precedent at times, is the incumbent president's party losing a huge number of seats in the House, right, in the first midterms elections in the 40s or the 50s in, in uh, Obama and the Clinton administrations. Uh, obviously, that's we, this was a huge rebuke of that. Uh, and I think ultimately, we're still the same country that narrowly elected Joe Biden as president, right? Both parties feel the economic pain. There's no question that's changed, right? Everyone feels inflation. Both parties do see things as, as getting worse economically. But on, on most of the kind of quote unquote social issues that we're talking about, there really is still, I think, a, a common sense majority that exists in this country, whether that's on things like a marriage, reproductive rights, the impact of immigrants. On, on so many topics, I really do think we're in more of a two-thirds, one-third country, at least a 60% country on most of those topics, gun safety, right? We're, we're, not, we're not as much of a 50-50 country, I think, as the politics would suggest. Uh, our politics is gerrymandered. There's some constitutional pieces that, you know, with, with smaller states and bigger states not having, you know, increasingly the Senate's representing a smaller and smaller, older white minority of the country, right? But the actual country, if you look at public opinion on these topics, is, is not nearly as divided. And I, I think this election was a nice reminder that, yes, the extremes are very loud. Yes, the extremes have a lot of power in our political system, particularly likely in the House, given one way or another how close that's going to be, right? Every, everyone's going to have... Uh, Certainly, in the streams are going to have a lot of power. You see that in the UK, you see that in Israel, you see it everywhere. But basically, I think we're still a country where brands can speak to the majority of people and not be uh, out of the mainstream. And, and yes, there'll be some um, some folks that are angry, but they'll be angry on both sides. Do you think? I mean, moving into twenty twenty three, obviously, we're going to be thinking about the general election. We're going to be moving in that direction. Both parties are going to have big questions about who's who are going to be their candidate, and we saw a a pretty statement-like uh, performance by Governor DeSantis in Florida on Tuesday. Some people were saying that the, the GOP is trying to move away from the, the Trump influence. And then on the Dems side, is Biden going to run again? And, you know, he, he 
his public appearances don't seem to do him as many favours as they should in, in terms of the way he comes across. What are your reflections on the leadership of both parties as we move into 23 and that big focus on the on the 24 election? I'm really looking forward to the Republican primary. Uh, that's that's number one. Can't can't wait. Can't wait uh, as, as that party tears itself, tears itself apart a little bit. Uh, so yeah, first and I don't even think there is a Republican Party. I mean, I think I think they all so many of the leaders of the Republican Party bemoan Donald Trump uh, in private and then support him in public. And I think the question is at what point uh, that starts to shatter and starts to break. Obviously, DeSantis is going to be a piece of that, but he's not the only one by any sense. It'll be pretty fascinating. There are a lot. I, I think for for democracy, I hope there's. I hope we land with two parties that believe in the outcome of the elections. And I, I hope the Republican Party can get back to that at a minimum. On the Democratic side, President Biden just had an unbelievable success after a very productive uh, couple of years legislatively, you know, passing huge, huge measures uh, fr- from healthcare costs to, cli- you know, to investments in, in defeating climate change or, or slowing climate change um, and, a, and a major electoral, frankly, win. Uh, and so if you were, uh, if you're president Biden and you're the only person that's ever beaten Donald Trump, you gotta be feeling pretty good right now. And so, uh, I think if he's, if he's feeling healthy enough to do it, I don't see why he shouldn't run. Um, and it seems like he's, he's inclined to do the same. Do you think there's a danger that he might take that election, those election results as a, uh, an endorsement of himself as a person rather than some of the issues for example, younger voters coming out, women coming out uh, on women's reproductive rights, not just women, but everybody, rather than President Biden's doing a fantastic job and I really buy into what he's doing. I think President Biden... I recognize you're not, maybe you're not exactly, you're not necessarily a completely unbiased commenter here, but... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. Full disclosure, we worked, we worked for his campaign and our, our uh, big supporters of the White House. But look, I think President Biden is, is can read the room. Right. I, th- I think he's a really, really smart guy. He's been in politics a long time. And I think he'd be the first to say that, you know, he said in the past that he is a, you know, in some ways a transitional president. I mean, look at how he won the primary uh, in 2020. Right. He was in many ways a, a, a consensus nominee and, and is there on, on behalf of a lot of those issues and won a presidential election because he was able to advance a lot of those issues. And those issues aren't going away. Right. The Supreme Court is still a Republican court. We are going to have massive, uh, from my perspective, devastating decisions in the next couple of years between now and the, and the 2024 election. Many of these topics like reproductive rights are going to go, you know, very few of them were able to get on the ballot uh, in 2022 because of how late that Dobbs decision was, right? And I think what we saw is that the states that did put reproductive rights on the ballot, Democrats did extremely well, right? There are going to be a lot more things like that as a result of the Supreme Court that now there is time to put those things on the ballot. Uh, for 24. Uh, so, uh, you know, from, from that perspective, I don't think he has to be the, necessarily the most hip or, or whatever. I think he has to be where the voters are. And I think the voters are, are with him on those, most of those 60, 40 issues. Yeah, for sure. And wrapping this up and bringing it back to sort of purposeful business, what do you expect to see in 2023? I'm, I still think we shouldn't be talking ourselves into a recession. I mean, I'm not an economist and, but I think, there is a danger of that sometimes. And um, yeah, there are a lot of job layoffs, especially in the tech sector. But is that down to the economy or is that really down to their own internal problems? You know, uh, but but anyway, that's my opinion. What do you think, Andrew? Look, our, our clients, including most of our financial service clients, think there's going to be a recession. Okay. They're the economists more than me, but they're seeing it in 
in, in their business. So we're, we're certainly preparing for that. Uh, it doesn't mean by any means that the communication needs are going to be less. Uh, the regulatory threats, the pressure on business, society pressures are likely to be higher in a recession. Uh, and there's going to be, you know, and frankly, most brands are going to be less able to rely on advertising and marketing to carry the day, right? Because that's where the cost savings is, you know, by and large, it's in advertising uh, more than on our side of the house. So the role of communications, the role of purpose likely becomes more important, particularly when, the, you know, the trade-off is really like Super Bowl ads and TV ads and, uh, and that side of the world where efficiency is going to become more important, where the persuasive impact of our messaging and with whom and our targeting is going to become more important in a recession. Uh, and it's not that most of these companies are going to go away or, you know, big companies are still going to be big companies, right? I think we'll obviously get out of the recession, but there's going to be a need to communicate from a policy perspective and a public affairs perspective. We've got about nine months, I think, right? So you mentioned the presidential election. I think we probably have through the beginning of next summer. Uh, for any actual progress or bipartisanship to occur, <laughs> whatever whatever we're trying to do substantively, and there are some areas of, of bipartisan agreement, um, you know, particularly as it relates to things where we might have an external competitor, like you know we saw in microchips this year, you know, versus China and some other topics, right? There's some good some good areas in innovation, uh, but we've got maybe nine months to get a lot of work done, <laughs> uh, and and then really we do get into that presidential election period, uh, and you know, all bets are sort of off on actual bipartisanship. So I do, I do think there are a lot of companies that want to get ahead of that. So I think we're going to see a lot of activity over the next, really the first half of next year. Yeah, and you said it. Comms is important whether we go into a recession or not. Comms is super important, and and everybody understands that, which is great for the profession. And uh, I liked uh, Tim Ryan's concession speech where he said, you know, I lost. Congratulations to my opponent. And we could do with a bit more of that, couldn't we? A bit more civil discourse between the two uh, sides of the country moving forwards. And uh, let's hope we see more of that. Final question. Nearly $17 billion, I think, was spent on advertising during the midterms. Does that, does that money work? Does that really get people? Does it change opinions? Or does it, is it more about getting people out to vote? Both. Good campaigns and good candidates matter, right? I mean, we saw, we've seen a lot of ticket splitting this year. Right, the electorate is smarter than we give it credit for. They, they, they really are. Right, where you know we saw a Senate candidate of one party, maybe a gubernatorial candidate of another, or, or likewise in the House. Uh, but I, I really do think the electorate's a lot smarter and more tuned in than we give it credit for. You know, and we've seen, frankly, we've seen good campaigns win and bad campaigns lose, uh, without regardless of the uh, the dollar amount. What's interesting is that there's so many more races that are really competitive right now. So obviously we talked about gerrymandering and maybe fewer races in the House maybe that are competitive, but there's so many races this year. I mean, this is not a presidential year, but if you look at what's going on, you know, the Secretary of State's races matter in our big money now, these AG races, Attorney General races, some of these local and state delegate races and the, you know, the state houses, particularly with this Supreme Court and what's what's happened in the removal of some of these things at the federal level, whether or not we can, who, who, the state races become so much more important to fundamental things. And so, yes, a ton of money is going to flow into state elections at various points and, and mayors too over the next couple of years. And, the, and they can really matter. Like everything else, like all advertising, you know, you don't know which half uh, necessarily works. But yes, it's a lot more trackable than it used to be. Uh, and particularly when you've got something to say uh, and you need a good candidate that actually uh, has something to say. 
for sure. And there's going to be plenty of money spent in Georgia over the next month. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Yes, but maybe not by crypto. <laughs> no, uh-huh. for sure. <laughs> Listen, thanks, Andrew, for joining us and talking through this fascinating subject. It's right at the heart of business and communication. So great to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks for having me.